Like the book of Revelation, the Song of Solomon has generated much discussion, divergent opinions and heated disagreement about its meaning and purpose. Like the book of Revelation, the song is both linear and cyclical in its structure. Both books move towards a point, a conclusion, a climax. But both books do so through repeated cycles of experience, each cycle increasing in intensity until the ultimate climax is anticipated. Like the book of Revelation, while the details may certainly be challenging, the overarching message of the song is clear. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the heart of the message is essentially the same in both books. Revelation presents history in terms of a cosmic conflict. The song presents it in terms of a love story. But both Revelation and the song end in the same place with the intimate union of Christ and his bride in paradise. In this Song of Songs, the King of Kings leads the one upon whom he has set his love away from vanity of vanities into the very holy of holies. Here, Surrounded by the paradise of his creative goodness, embraced in his transcendent love and showered with his tender kisses, this king's bride reaches the climax of his creative and redemptive purpose and finds perfect peace in intimate union with him. This indeed is the song that surpasses all other songs. And it begins with these words. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. I want you to see in the first place that the bride, though she perhaps is not yet a bride, craves the kisses of her lover. You will see, if you've got the ESV translation of the Bible in front of you, that uh, various sections are headed with either she or he or others. And uh, the reason for that is that in the original Hebrew, though it doesn't have these sectional headings, uh, the, the language itself uh, tells us when it's a man speaking or a woman speaking and who the object of their words is, who it is that they're speaking to or speaking 
about and whether there's one person speaking or there's a plurality of people speaking. And so for the most part, as you work your way through this Song of Solomon, uh, the ESV headings are an accurate reflection of who is speaking at each point. Now, there, there are some places where uh, perhaps the ESV has not been as accurate as it could have been, and that would be dependent to some degree on one's interpretation of the song. And we'll uh, see some places as we move our way through uh, where I would put uh, the heading in a different place or a different person speaking those particular words. But here in this section that takes our attention this evening, verses 2 through the first part of verse 4, it is she who is speaking. This is the one who is loved by the king. And these are the two main characters, the king and the one that he loves. And then there are some other characters that will appear in the story as we go through. There are the others, as the ESV uh, refers to them. Uh, they may be the virgins that the end of verse 3 speaks of. Or they may be the daughters of Jerusalem that verse 5 speaks of. Or those two virgins and the daughters of Jerusalem may be the same people. So there are those others. And then uh, more smaller roles are played in this drama uh, by watchmen and by the brothers of this woman who is loved by the king. And this woman then begins the song. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She craves his kisses. And immediately we must understand that we, we're already part way through the unfolding love story. The story doesn't actually start at the very beginning. It doesn't start when they see each other across the room and think to each other, oh, she looks pretty okay. He, he looks okay to me. I'd like to get to know that person better. It doesn't start there. These people are already in love. In fact, it's not just that they're already in love. They are betrothed. That's old language. Uh, we perhaps think of it in terms of engagement, but this is, this is far greater than engagement. This is actually a covenant that has made. It, it is, in essence, it is the signing of the marriage documents that take place at the point of betrothal. But then there's a period of time before the marriage itself is formally consummated with a, a feast and then the young couple coming together. So what I'm saying to you is that as this song begins, this couple isn't married. The marriage takes place at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And that's very clear in the song. But there's a degree and a strength of commitment to each other and love 
for each other that tells us that this couple are betrothed to one another. Legally, in a sense, they are married. This couple couldn't just part ways and pretend that the other never existed. They would have to get a divorce if they wished to be separated. That's how strong and binding betrothal was. So that, that I think, is important to understand in chapters 1, 2, and 3, before the marriage takes place in chapter 4, that, that these are a couple that are committed to one another. There's an exclusivity to their love for one another. Now here in these opening verses, there are two possible scenes unfolding. One is that this is a scene of intimacy longed for. The NIV takes this approach uh, because it says in verse 4, after draw me after you, let us run, uh, it says, let the king bring me into his chambers. The ESV says, the king has brought me into his chambers. So the NIV is interpreting this paragraph as the, the desire of this woman for her lover and to enter into intimacy with her lover. The alternative view is to take the text as we have it in the ESV translation and most other translations that I checked and understand that this is, this is a little paragraph that's talking about intimacy that has been realised. Or, well, let me put it this way. If you were here last week, you'll recall that I said that Throughout this book, there's a, a series of cycles of longing leading to satisfaction that grow in intensity as we go through each cycle and reaching a climax at the end of the book. And this, this is a kind of a prelude. After all, it's a song, it's a piece of music and in a musical piece, there may be a number of movements, and it may begin with a prelude and end with a postlude, distinct pieces of music, but attached to, connected to the main body of the piece. And in some pieces of music, the prelude can introduce a melodic theme that then is picked up by the main body of the piece and is explored and drawn out. And I think that's quite a helpful way of thinking about the Song of Solomon, that there is a, a theme. The theme is longing and satisfaction that is picked up and, and explored through the book. Well, these verses, verses 2 through 4, they are the prelude. They introduce us to the theme. So we have in these verses both the longing and the satisfaction. So we, we go from let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth to the king has brought me into his chambers. 
And this isn't telling us that these, this betrothed couple are consummating their marriage prematurely. It is actually telling us the whole story from beginning to end. But it's doing so in a kind of an introductory way. So that this recurring theme is presented to us and then it will be explored as the book unfolds. Well, whether you take it the way the NIV takes it as intimacy longed for or you take it the way that it's presented to us in the ESV as intimacy both longed for and realised, either way, there is here a legitimate longing for intimacy. This is a couple who belong to each other. This is a couple who have made a commitment to each other. This is a couple who are craving for each other. She longs to be held by him. She longs to be embraced by him. She longs to be loved by him. And that desire is an appropriate desire in the context. But we must remember that throughout this book, a warning is given. We see it there in chapter 2 and verse 7. She, this same woman who says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, says to the daughters of, of Jerusalem, I adjure you by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. These desires, these longings, these cravings, that they have an appropriate place. They even have an appropriate place even when they cannot be immediately satisfied. For we see that throughout the early part of this book, that there is longing, there is craving that cannot be immediately satisfied because they're not yet married. So yes, there's a longing, there's a craving within marriage that can be immediately satisfied by husband and wife. But there's a legitimate craving for those who are committed to one another, simply waiting for the wedding day, as long as they don't try to satisfy that craving. And they're patient in that craving, longing for the day. After all, why would they want to get married if they didn't crave one another and long for one another? And are you going to reduce it simply to the fact that they, they like to live together, they love one another's company, they like good conversation with one another? Seriously? No, there's far more. They want intimacy. They crave intimacy. Yes, all of the rest, but that too. And it's it's a craving that God designed. It is a craving that God invented. It is a craving that he gave to Adam and Eve when he made them with this longing, with this craving. It only becomes something sinful when there is no legitimate object for the craving. 
or when it is so generalised that anyone will do. There's a place and a time and the warnings throughout this song constantly remind us there's a place, there's a time. Don't stir up love until the right time. But of course, the Song of Solomon, as I indicated last time, isn't merely about the love of a man and a woman. It has a far greater theme than that, a far more glorious theme than that. This is the story, not of human love, but of divine love. Certainly we draw from the picture of divine love lessons for our own love, our own marriages, our own intimacy, as we will see as we work our way through. But here, what Solomon, inspired by the Holy Spirit, with all the wisdom that God has given to him, is setting before Israel the story of God's love for them and what ought to be their love for him, their longing for him. Now, they didn't always get it right, did they, Israel, in terms of their love for God? Perhaps we could say they didn't often get it right. But that doesn't negate the fact that what Solomon is is doing here is encouraging Israel towards a right love for God. After all, when we read... Paul's instructions to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 concerning husbands and wives and the way that they are to relate to one another. He says in chapter 5 and verses 22 through 24, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And I ask you, is the church consistently a good pattern for wives to follow. It's not. It falls and it fails. It's not perfect in its submission to Christ. There would never be any problems. We wouldn't have half of the New Testament if that was the case. And yet, Paul says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It's almost as if he's saying, as the church, if it was what the church should be and lived how the church should live, as the church submits to Christ, then wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And it's like that here 
in the Song of Solomon. That he presents the story of the love of Israel to God as it ought to be. Not as it often was. An adulterous love for false gods. Rather than a singular love for Yahweh, their God. In the song, in the song she's not perfect. In the song she doesn't get everything right. Because after all, it is Israel. In the song there's change in her. There's growth in her. She becomes more mature, more understanding, more considerate, more loyal, more devoted, more in love with him. But not him. He doesn't change. Through this song, the king doesn't change. He doesn't get any better because he doesn't need to get any better. He makes her better. But he is already perfect because this song is, is presenting to us the love of God for Israel. And though the whole nation of Israel certainly was often, if not usually, an adulterous nation, there was always a remnant among them who loved the Lord and were loyal and faithful to the Lord. And while Israel as a whole perhaps wouldn't fit the description of crying out, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There were always a few in Israel that would fit that description. We see it, for example, in the Psalms. In Psalm 42 and in the opening verses. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Or Psalm 63 and verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts. For you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or Psalm 84 and verse 2 My soul longs, yes, it faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Here are those who, who yearn. For his kisses, who yearn for his many and varied blessings that are the expressions of his tender love 
towards them. They want to be embraced by God. They want to be filled by God. They want to be wrapped up in God and find full and and lasting satisfaction in him. This is their yearning. This is their craving. And she, she wants this one. There's, There's only one for her. She's blind to all others. This isn't a general longing for gratification. But this is deeply specific and personal. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. There's only one she longs for, she craves. And so it should be in our own relationships, in our own marriages, certainly one person, only one that we crave, one that we long for, one that can bring us satisfaction. But even before that, we shouldn't have this generalised longing that can be gratified by any one-night stand or casual encounter. This doesn't reflect the story of the song and the singularity of the love that is portrayed for us in these words. She craves his kisses. Why? Why so specific? Why just him? Why not another? Well, she tells us why. She makes three statements of why this is the case. Your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. That's why she longs for the kisses of his mouth. That's why she longs for his embrace. She knows him. She knows his nature. She knows his character. Here are three things that she tells us about him as she sings this song. She tells us that his love is intoxicating. It is better than wine. Some commentators go into great detail as to why love can be better than wine. We don't need to go into detail. Remember the broad brush. This is evocative language. If we start trying to get into all of the detail of what wine is and what wine's like and how love is and how it's better than wine, we're missing the point. This is just a figure that draws us out to say, yes, yes, that love, that kind of love that surpasses every other thing that we might long for in life, that's the kind of love I want. That's the kind of love I desire. His love excites her. His love invigorates her. Her love, his love satisfies her. But at the same time, while leaving her satisfied, it leaves her wanting more. It's not that she can ever walk away from him. She keeps coming back to him. Her thoughts are always 
obsessed with him and his love. What is it about his love that attracts her? Well, it's, it's an always giving love. It's never selfish. It's never demanding. He never says, it's my turn. He always wants to delight her and fulfill her desires and to do so with, with gentleness, with kindness, with patience, with consideration. He honours her with his love. It's an interesting point that some commentators have made about the Song of Solomon. They say that the Song of Solomon has its counterpart in the book of Proverbs and particularly in the early chapters of the book of Proverbs. And so we read in Proverbs chapter 5, for example, the instruction that Solomon gives to his son. He says in verse 15 and following, My son, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear. A graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And so Solomon gives his wisdom to his son and says, Be intoxicated with the love of your bride. And here is instruction not to a son. Here is instruction to a daughter. And throughout this book, it's as though this, this book has been written with a particular audience in mind. And the audience is the daughters of Jerusalem. And so there are lessons here, particularly for women, but not only for women, just as in the book of Proverbs, the lessons aren't only for men, for sons. But you see that there's a, a kind of a counterpoint here. And just as the son is told, be intoxicated with the love of the wife of your youth, here the woman is saying, your love, my betrothed, your love is better than wine. I am intoxicated by your love. I desire no other love. No other love will satisfy me. No other love is so fitting and right for me. No other love is designed and suited for me. You have me as the object of your love. And so his love is intoxicating to her because it's designed for her and for no one else 
to meet her unique individual needs because all of his attention is on her. And so her attention is drawn to him. And she loves him and desires him. She says also, your anointing oils are fragrant. She says, I love him because of his position. It is a glorious position that he fills. Why do I say that? Well, because it speaks about these anointing oils, fragrant anointing oils. And we already have seen that she refers to him later in verse 4 as the king. So these are the anointing oils of the king. Uh, We read of them in Psalm 45, which is another love song. Uh, The song of the love of a king for his bride and of the bride for her king. And so here is one who who holds a high position. He sits on the throne of the land. After all, Solomon throughout this song is depicted to us as the ideal son of David who fulfills the covenant promises of God. This is the king that she has fallen head over heels in love with. And he's not a despot. He's not a tyrant sitting upon the throne of Israel. There is an aroma about this man that is so satisfying. And it's not talking about the way that he smells. It's talking about who he is. It's talking about his character, the kind of man he is. He holds this exalted position as king of Israel. And he fits that position. His character is suited to that position. He is the chosen anointed one, the king. Of course, this is the way that Solomon himself is depicted for us in First Kings, for example, and chapter 1. And in verse 39 we read, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. Solomon, of course, is the son of David who himself was chosen by God to be the first in this dynasty of kings that would have an eternal reign culminating at last in the one unique son of David who would sit enthroned forever upon the throne of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So here is the anointed king. 
the son of David. Here is the promised one. But she says something more about him. Your name is oil poured out. And some translations will have those words oil poured out in inverted commas, as though that is his name. It's not that his name is like oil poured out. His name is oil poured out. But either way, what's the significance of this? Well, oil poured out is generally poured out in terms of being a blessing. It may be anointing oil. Or it may be in some other situation. But here it carries the idea of this is someone at the mention of whose name people smile with happy memories of him. His name is praiseworthy. His name is in fact his story. It is more than a label to distinguish him from others, but his name is who he is. That, that's the idea that's being conveyed here when it says your name is oil poured out. It's the fact that his whole life is lived as a blessing to others. This was who the king was to be. This was who Solomon was to be. David prayed a prayer for Solomon. It's the last of the prayers of David in book two of the Psalter, Psalm 72. And there in verse 17, he prays, May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. That was David's desire for Solomon. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and in verse 9. God made a covenant with David to bless him and his descendants after him. And we're told in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 9, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And he goes on to say about this covenant that he is going to establish with David and his kingdom and his son after him. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But you see, this, this name, like the name of the great ones, is obviously harking back to an earlier time, an earlier period, other people. And in Genesis, when God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and made a covenant with him, that covenant was to bless him 
He said to him, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you see from Abraham through David to Solomon, the greatness of the name and its blessing upon all the peoples of the world is an enduring story connected through these great men who have a name that is praiseworthy and blessed because they are a blessing. And this anointed king, whose very nature is to bless, can point to none other than God. And God in Christ, the one whose name is I Am, the eternally existent one who brought all things into being and sustains all things by the word of his power, from whom every blessing flows in heaven and on earth. And in Christ Jesus, then, the promise to Abraham, the promise to David, the promise depicted in Solomon finds its ultimate fulfillment as he is the one who blesses the nations. And he is the one who destroys the cursor. He is the one who reigns eternal. And Israel says, I want him. And the church says, I want him. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For his love is intoxicating, his position is glorious, and his name is praiseworthy. No other one for me. No other one. What kind of man are you, men? What kind of man are you? A man whose love is intoxicating, whose position is glorious, and whose name is praiseworthy. You say, well, I'm not Solomon. I'm not a son of David. No, you're a son of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And the God of gods, you're his son. And he calls you to reflect his own character, a character that embraces your bride. In always giving, never selfish, gentle, kind, patient, considerate, honouring love. Whose character is an aroma to all around you where they don't grimace at the mention of your name, but they smile because of the memories of your goodness. And they praise the fact that you are a blessing to those around you. That's the kind of man that you should be, whoever you are. And that's the kind of man that you should be attracted to, women. The kind of man that reflects 
the character of Christ, your Redeemer and your Lord. For such a man will draw you closer and closer to Christ. And in his love, and his love alone, you will be totally satisfied. And so, this one who calls upon her lover to kiss her, who describes him in such elevated terms, then says to him, draw me. Draw me after you. She, she invites him to lead her. Isn't that strange? She invites him to lead her. Well, of course, she's responding to who he is. She's responding to how he has revealed herself, himself to her. Her invitation is a response to his revelation. In a sense, we can say she hasn't started this thing. He has. And she is now saying, in essence, yes, 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 lead me. Take me with you. Draw me along with yourself and to yourself. She wants his kisses because He has shown her his love for her. And now nothing else will satisfy. She's tasted and seen that he is good. And such such love is a leading love. It's a drawing love. And that kind of love, that kind of love cannot be grasped hold of until it is first offered. That kind of love cannot be enjoyed until it is freely given. You see, this love cannot be stolen. It's not that she's grasping him, clinging to him without him already initiated and drawn her desire for himself. And her request then acknowledges her, his leadership. Her desire is not to draw him, but to be drawn by him. Draw me, she says, draw me. Draw me out of myself. Draw me into you. And, and in a sense, that's what this, this song is going to do. It's going to be the drawing of this lover as he draws her to himself and fully satisfies her. This is what Christ does. He shows us his love. He shows us his character. He gives us a little taste of who he is. And once we've tasted that, oh, there's no satisfying our desire in any other than Christ. We want 
him. We want more of Christ, more of this glorious, praiseworthy one whose love is intoxicating. And so we see in this song this subtle balance between leading, following, and what I might call mutual initiation. What's first? Her love? No, his love. And then her love. What's first? Her desire? No, his desire. And then her desire. But once that desire has been kindled in her, once his love has been shown to her, then she is free. She is free to invite him. Draw me. Draw me after you. Satisfy me with the kisses of your mouth. And so she is drawn. The king has brought me into his chambers. Here the longing is satisfied. Here. The deepest desires are met in intimate union with the king. Solomon wrote this song probably at the time when he built the temple in Jerusalem, when he was at the height of his devotion to God and before his many foreign wives had drawn his heart away from God to love and worship idols and there as he looked at the plans that David his father had given him in great detail according to first chronicles 28 there is are the courtyards and there is the temple and there are the chambers and there are the inner chambers the inner chambers of the house of God. The holy of holies is there. This is where Israel longs to come. This is where Israel does come once a year. Vicariously through the mediation of the high priest. Once a year sacrifice is made and the blood is taken into the holiest of all and sprinkled there upon the mercy seat. This is where Israel longs to be. Oh, that she could always be there in the presence of her God, her deliverer from slavery, the one who has given her the promised land of inheritance, so that she could always be in his presence in the holy of holies. This is where the believer comes. By the finished work of Jesus Christ who has torn the veil that is his flesh and has brought us into the very holy of holies of God. And there in this place the bride enjoys intimate union with the forever king of glory. <laughs> 